to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Um, just wanted to remind you before we get started, this podcast is made possible by uh, the support of the law offices of Gabriel K. White. Uh, you can visit their website at uh, www.saltlaketrialattorney.com. That's www.saltlaketrialattorney.com for information about uh, their personal injury and commercial litigation practice. Uh, they represent people who have been injured in accidents and um, people involved in commercial disputes. So I invite you to visit that website and give them a call if you have any uh, need for those kind of services. And so without further ado, the Trial Lawyer Podcast. Today we will be discussing pre-injury releases, uh, both generally as a matter of public policy and uh, specifically in the state of Utah. Um, we've got, obviously, some people who did have done far more specific research than me, my colleagues here. Um, I'm uh, Gabriel White, and I'm here with uh, Danny Sepernich and Scott Powers, both of the fine law firm of uh, Snow, Christensen, and Martineau. Um, who have researched this issue. I've litigated several cases involving uh, pre-injury releases. And so um, we're going to kind of launch right into it. Danny, can you give us kind of an idea of what the state of the law is in Utah as far as the enforceability of pre-injury releases? I mean, maybe start with the definition of what we're talking about. What they are. Sure. So a pre-injury release is basically some sort of contract or waiver that you sign before engaging in an activity, uh, typically some sort of sporting activity or something where you might get injured and you release the company that you're engaging with from any liability for their negligence. Um, they might, in advance. In advance, before you engage in the activity. So. Maybe if you went to an ice skating rink before you put on the ice skates, you'd sign some sort of waiver that said in the event you got hurt, you have released the ice skating rink for any liability for its negligence that caused your injury. Um, So generally, Utah courts recognize that these types of waivers are enforceable. Uh, They're subject to a couple of exceptions. So one is uh, releases that offend public policy The second is releases for activities that fit within a public interest exception. And then the third is that releases that are unclear or unambiguous, or sorry, unclear or ambiguous, those are unenforceable. And then also as a general matter, a company can't release or you can't release a company for gross negligence. And obviously that that is to prevent kind of the most perverse potential outcome of this, whereas if you could release a company for gross negligence, they just simply wouldn't care at all what happened to their customers. Right. Just kind of do whatever they were going to do. Right. So things that really go above and beyond normal, ordinary negligence are typically not releasable. And I I can say from the plaintiff's perspective, I mean, in certain cases, you do do that kind of research. Ski industry is a great example. I mean, there are several law firms in Salt Lake that specialize in handling these um, you know, it, cases involving the Inherent Risk of Skiing Act and, and um, exceptions to that. But 
in my experience, the way that most plaintiffs get around it is by just alleging gross negligence and working to prove that claim up uh, with the hopes that the threat of potentially a jury... I mean, obviously we litigate all of these cases in the shadow of trial. And, you know, in my experience, there's a high potential that a jury will look at, especially if you're in in one of the... Uh, I guess this is Utah, so only relatively more plaintiff-friendly jurisdictions. Um, There aren't any truly plaintiff-friendly jurisdictions in the state, but relatively plaintiff-friendly. They may look at it and say, gee, this person really got hurt, and we think it's the, you know, this um, trampoline operator or... You've got really a bond to pick with the... uh trampoline parks don't you oh well i mean here my thoughts with trampoline (laughs) parks i'm representing one right now in this coverage action and the thing is is they they are a business that's kind of put in a difficult position because it's it's a really dangerous activity and so you've got well do you allow them to waive this activity do you put extra requirements on it and it's tough to know even for those businesses like what they can and can't do but um you know, you prove it up and you hope that you, you, the argument you make to opposing counsel in settlement negotiations is, look, jury's going to look at this. They're going to see my severely injured plaintiffs. They're going to see your somewhat callous defendants, you know, who's, who are basically like, look, we, you know, they tend to come off once they know that they've got this release in depositions, at least my experience, they tend to come off somewhat callous at different points. And we say, look, a jury's going to look at that and they're going to find gross negligence because they're going to figure out the reason we're arguing it is because that's how we have to recover. And we're going to drop our negligence claim before we get to trial so that that's their only option. And um, I've found from a settlement perspective that to be quite effective, um, especially where I have, like I said, plaintiffs that come off very sympathetic or very sincere. Um, You know, and, and... Arguably, the cases. Uh, it, there's one in, a, in particular I'm thinking of, and unfortunately, I did not release the. I did not research the scope of the confidentiality provision that we signed when we settled it. So I can't get into too many of the details. But there was a really good basis for claiming gross negligence if you believed our version of the facts of the case. Well, can't you draft? any particular complaint to allege that whatever the negligent act is is above and beyond what even you know an unreasonable plaintiff or, or you know tort you feature would do well you can but ultimately I don't think you're ever going to have rule 11 sanctions brought against you no and it's not about rule I mean it's not about rule 11 it's about summary judgment I mean the question is you're in the in terms of the complaint and the claim and the evidence you deduce this, situa- this scenario that I'm describing only works if you can actually adduce enough evidence to survive well, summary judgment. Well, let's move that a step further. Have you ever been involved in a case wherein a pre-injury release was upheld to the point where it barred your claim? No. I haven't either. No, because, and the reason, but part of the reason is, is because typically the pre-injury release is something I find out about right at the beginning of the case. And I have, there have been cases that I passed on because I said, 
I don't think that what, I mean, as a plaintiff's lawyer, you know, I, I'm much, my approach is much more venture capital than it is your typical, you know, okay, let's evaluate these defenses. I'm investing in the case and I'm only taking, because I, have a, I have a personal vested interest in only taking cases that I think have merit and that I can win or at least that I can push somebody into a settlement. And, um, you know, there have been cases where I've gotten a pre-injury release that's pretty solid, and I look at the conduct that they're describing that was wrong. You know, I remember one involving a trampoline park where it was basically the existence of the trampoline park was the negligence, said this is inherently dangerous. Perhaps I agree with that, but... Um, I didn't think we could get around the pre-injury release. And even though there was a horrible injury involved, I said, pass. Yeah, but if it's a horrible injury and you've got a bunch of damages that are significant enough, couldn't you have just simply alleged gross negligence, inherent, you know, unwaivable, you know, undelivable duty? I don't know. Just put out enough buzzwords there. And I've seen enough complaints where the buzzwords are used... Perhaps you've gotten a little more jaded to the point where you said you... I mean... Why are you giving up, Gabe? Plaintiffs, plaintiffs attorneys won't just file claims on anything. Just because somebody has big damages. Now, somebody has big damages, there's somebody who's able to I'll bet to that guy found a, found a... Well, I won't say a shill. I'll say found a wonderful, enterprising attorney. And I'll bet he got paid, or she, or whoever. He may have gotten paid something to go away, but... I'm not really interested in nuisance value cases. I'm 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 busy enough, and I have, you know, enough clients who are really legitimately horribly injured, and that the law doesn't give them significant problems in pursuing their claims. I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't think that guy that I turned away that he he's that he was wrong. Mm. I mean, this the way they had this park set up, this particular one, was was really dangerous and they were having serious like spinal injuries coming out of this place on a regular basis but you know to say that just to allow people to come in here and use it is negligent negligent, and they've got a whole training video you have to watch about the rules and I mean yes I I have heard before I've read transcripts from experts in trampoline cases because my old firm we had a guy who was an expert in those. And there are experts out there who say that trampolines just are inherently dangerous. That unless you have a professional setup with harnesses and things, that they that you cannot mitigate the harm from that. And that causes additional problems as well. But I just am not interested in litigating that case in an environment where you've got a really strong pre-injury release. Now, Danny, you were talking previously one major exception to this provision that's particularly applicable in Utah and you know I I suspect there may be I I, I haven't researched it but there may be similar laws in some areas of the Mountain West that depend on a particular industry uh, uh, like skiing. Mm -hmm. So the legislature in Utah has enacted the Inherent Risks of Skiing Act and they articulated a public policy for doing so based on how important the ski industry is to the state. And basically, um, this act prevents people from suing ski resorts or ski companies uh, for 
injuries that are inherent in just the act of skiing and it identifies certain activities or risks that are inherent in skiing and so you cannot recover for negligence for those and it was designed to enable ski resorts or ski companies to obtain insurance to cover other types of risks that people might face. Um, so that act does have broad effect and it precludes people from recovering for a lot of ski injuries. But on the other hand, the Utah courts have held that in light of that act and kind of this public policy bargain that was driven, um, ski companies now cannot otherwise have a pre-injury release for, for injuries that people might suffer. So if you can recover under the act and you have signed a, a pre-injury release, that release typically isn't going to be valid because of this public policy bargain. So all of these ski resorts are wasting all of that money printing those little releases on the back of the ski passes. Um, essentially for anything that's beyond the inherent risk of skiing. The cases that I've seen um, that have gone the distance, and I know some attorneys who've defended some, some that have brought some, are, um, as against ski resorts, are cases that involve design of particular features of the resort. I'm, I believe the case you're you were referring to involved uh, like a wall that was built out of railroad ties and was covered in snow so you couldn't be seen. Mm -hmm. So it looked like it was something that you could run into. Bounce into. And it turned out to be essentially like a frozen brick wall. Right. And this guy got really hurt. I've seen cases before where there were some serious, you know, multi-million dollar settlements involving the design of particular runs and things. Right. And so in those cases, and we're talking about typical ordinary person skiing, so not a special ski event or a ski race or something like that, but ordinary day on the hill. Um, in those cases, uh, people can't enforce the, the liability release that you might have signed because it falls within that public policy exception I was talking about earlier. So that's the first of the three exceptions to enforcing these waivers. Okay, but so so what about when I, what are the other what are the other exceptions to enforcing the waivers? I mean, obviously, it, I, you're talking beyond the fact that you can't waive gross negligence, or is that one of them? No, that's a that's a separate, separate issue. So then, the second exception was an activity that is a public interest activity, and there's a multi-part test um, for identifying whether an activity falls within that. And then the last exception, um, I'm not sure they classify it as an exception, but it seems like just part of the rule. If a waiver is not clear and unambiguous, so if it's confusing in any way and doesn't clearly put the person on notice of what they're waiving, then it's unenforceable also. And I'm assuming that it's similar to insurance policies where it's probably ambiguities are construed against a drafter. I think that's right. And so you have to be very, very clear, which is why I think on some of these, when we've, you or I have been up and want to participate in one of these activities, you see big, bold letters mm -hmm. and things at the top of the... All is underlined multiple it's, times. It's all caps and it's underlined. And well, I know we keep talking about exceptions, but I think the bigger question is when is it okay for one party to put another party at the mercy of its own misconduct? 
I think that's that's. I mean, it's an interesting thing that you know the courts and and the government, so to speak, whether it be the you know legislative branch or the courts uh, in Utah, have determined that you know I, we're going to think this is okay because I know there are a couple of states where they said no, 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 we're not going to allow any kind of pre-injury. There are several shifting. States. There's a lot of states that, that don't, don't allow, allow that stuff. pre-injury release. You know, as we see here today, having defended against the cases, you know, I I I, I relied on it. Um, I'm. Well, you have I'm, to. I'm, I'm one of the you know managers of a pretty big cycling team, and I, you can imagine one of my first suggestions as manager of this team, over 100 people, I think we're up to 160 or something now, uh, was we need to have a participation release and waiver so that you know this budding LLC that has this nonprofit sponsorship fund <laughs> does not go away as a result of someone claiming to have been injured when they participated do you, you know, do on a bicycle. Guys, do you guys maintain uh, liability insurance for that, or is it basically just to prevent, just to preserve and protect the the fund itself? Oh, I think the fund is gone uh, to the extent there's ever a lawsuit. I mean, at the end of the day, the whole purpose is just to try to. I mean, at the end of the day, it's but really there's no too, it's there's no insurance component. No, but but really, the the key is not so much it's it, it being motivated by insurance. So in that case, but but in that case, if there's no money in there and there's no insurance, aren't you just wouldn't you be better off just being protected by the limited liability protections of the LLC statute? Well, it is, but also I think that, and this is what I was getting to, I think more than anything, these these clauses serve to chill potential claims. I think that's the biggest thing they do. I don't think that they're, when it comes to, can we enforce this in court? As long as you have an argument that it is enforceable and it's not necessarily totally thrown out by statutory you know, enactment, then you've got a significant chilling factor. Case in point, your position on that case that that guy brought to you. You say, you know what? I don't know that I want to go and fight to get around this waiver. And and you know that the fight about the waiver is all the more likely the bigger the case is. Well, and I will say that, to be fair, that was the sole case that I've ever turned away because of a... <clears throat> and it was because literally I couldn't find any I couldn't find bad conduct on behalf of the defendants like other than they haven't violated a duty other well other than unless you wanted to say look just merely having this Being facility there. is is inherently dangerous which yeah I, I understand there is an argument for that but but the point if if it had been different if there had been, you know, an employee who had done something who had made things more dangerous or who had been egging this guy on to do something that he shouldn't have done. It, totally different. Well, let's now, get where, into that. No. Hold on. But where, where I do think it chills claims, okay, is, is here's where I think it chills claims. And this is one of the reasons why I think from a public policy standpoint, the courts really need to re reevaluate this and as I was telling Danny before we got started from maybe from an open courts perspective where these where these tend to chill claims is from the pre-lawyer stage because what happens is somebody Absolutely. gets somebody gets hurt and immediately the the adjusters descend upon this plaintiff and they say hey um, they get first they get a recorded statement that locks them into the fact that Oh yeah, you read this and you knew it and you saw it and you understood it, even though obviously they didn't go to law school, they're not familiar with this case law, they didn't understand it. And then they get them to sign off on this, you know, 
penny any settlement that pays, you know, a few, couple thousand dollars of their, you know, a hundred thousand dollar medical bill, say because they say, look, you're never going to be able to recover because you knew the risks you were told. Well, so here, here's and so the, it keeps them from getting to legal counsel. Well, let's get let's now use this as a transition to the fun part of tonight's podcast called "Who Do You Sue." <laughs> Who do you sue? Who do we, what do you mean, who do you sue? Well. <laughs> what are you talking about? A lot of people, well, from a practical advice perspective, you know, we've been sitting here saying, well, they've got a chilling effect. If anyone were listening, maybe we offer some advice on how to get around it. Because at the end of the day, for example, we've been talking about the skiing case. I have defended a number of claims and paid out significant money based on skiers who are injured by other skiers. And they don't sue the resort because they don't want to fight that that. Well, that but, those are, but those are typically cases where the, where the, the injury was caused directly by the negligence of but some that's other just skier. So no, it, you just pick a random skier. No, yeah, you just pick, pick a random, just random, skier. random <laughs> skier. like somebody. I sue you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think look the... Look at the brand uh, of ski. Do they look new? Does yeah. the person look like they're well off? I mean, no. I, I, jacket. I do, I do, do agree that... It? That if the case gets as far as legal counsel, if I if I'm reviewing the case and there are several defendants, potential defendants, people who did something wrong, like a third party liability case, and one of them's got a waiver and one of them doesn't, like if you know they were out on the horse trail, and some other company, you know, construction company is moving heavy equipment through, in a way that they're not supposed to, and it startles the horse, throws the person off. Yeah, that's going to affect the outcome because I got a release on one hand. On the other hand, I got somebody that's totally uncovered and probably heavily insured. So definitely it's going to affect who I sue in certain cases where there are facts which support, you know, third-party liability or liability that falls within some hole in the release. Um, Usually when I get these cases, my first thought is I'm looking for gross negligence. Because I, I, the Utah Supreme Court has been pretty hard on grants for summary judgment in negligent, against plaintiffs in negligence cases, even on gross negligence. And um, a lot of times after you take the depositions of the major employees, you get statements from them where they're like, yeah, you know what? It's dangerous. They signed it. And yeah, that's right. I did this. And... Because they get in their minds like, that's, you know, hey, what we do is dangerous and that's why these people sign it. And so I am covered, which affects their attitude. And then I can use that in response to the summary judgment motion and survive that motion to, uh, to beat the, the gross neck. And actually, I've, I haven't had one yet actually filed um, because by that time I'm like, are you serious? You're going to file it? Would you, would you rather mediate maybe now because you've got this one person who I've got all this testimony from saying, yeah, basically saying everything but, I didn't care if they got hurt. I just did what I did and you know I think what I did was right and so who cares? And most judges are not going to kick you out of the courthouse when you've got a defendant who has that kind of attitude because they're going to think, that could support a finding of gross negligence. But, yeah, definitely you're right. Now, I mean, 
Is there a public policy in favor of enforcing pre-injury releases? Ooh, that's a good name. Maybe we should call it the Public Policy Podcast. The Public Policy Podcast. No, with this kind of <laughs> with this kind of mic, you're not gonna you're not gonna get the kind of popping pop the kind of popping that you're you're expecting to I'm, I'm to make that, that joke. But I think there's some public policy in favor of letting people. And maybe this is a naive approach to it, but letting people um, weigh the cost and benefit to themselves and so young. But do they know? So I mean, how do they really know? Who are they? Well, most of these people are people are not. For example, most of these people who are going up and using. People? Listen to me. Most of these people who are going up, for example, and using these horse services, they're either tourists or they're people who have never been around horses before. Because if you have spent a significant enough time around horses, your idea of a nice afternoon with horses is not some old horse that's been run down to the point where supposedly it's just rideable by anybody. And most of the people who are going up there to do this are people who um, are either you know tourists and this is just their first experience with this whatsoever. So how do they, how do they really evaluate? Even if you put it in bold text, this is dangerous. How do they really evaluate what it feels like to be on top of a you know twelve hundred pound animal that could react? I mean, could see a rattlesnake and could completely freak out, roll over and crush somebody. How do, you, how do they evaluate those risks? Do they need to evaluate, do they, do evaluate they, that before they sign the release? Well, if, I, mean, I think at the end the of the day, it's, is, a, it's a if the argument it's is a intelligent play, right? waiver. The argument is, can we allow people to make intelligent waivers of their rights? Like, how do you have an intelligent waiver in that situation? Well, what do you have to do? Do you have to skydive a thousand times to see whether or not it's worth taking the risk of one in a thousand dying or something? I kind of think that's silly. Do you have to do it once? No. The waiver tells you it's this is dangerous in case you didn't already know. Like yeah. skydiving or bungee jumping is an easier example. But dangerous is a relative <laughs> term. Oh, now we're getting into semantics. Well, how can we define any word without using another word? I mean, it's it's related to the similar argument like in the medical context where you say, okay, there are inherent can you know, there's a long standing risk and complications. Yeah, there's a long standing argument. Well, related to that, there's a long standing debate even in the medical community as to whether or not informed consent is really possible. Like, can somebody who is, if we've already decided you can't even bring a claim without having medical experts on both sides, can a layperson really understand the risks when what they're typically, the, the education they're given about before they make this choice is they're read at best, they're read a form that says this could, in, this could cause this, 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 and this. In most cases, they're actually just handed a form and said, hey, read this. I need you to sign in six places and then hand it back and then we can take you back and, and put you under anesthesia. Like, it, with pre, these pre-injury releases, maybe it's a little better than that, but are, are there really intelligent waivers? So I don't know that I meant so much intelligent waivers as just even the opportunity to engage in the activity at, maybe at all, maybe some of these companies wouldn't exist but for the waivers, like the trampoline company, right? This place where oh, you they go could and bounce. not exist. Right. So but did they exist? Depriving a whole group of people the but opportunity they, to go have a wonderful but they day did exist. on trampolines. They did exist before... before waivers existed? Before waivers existed. Of course they did. No. 
Trampolines go back to the 40s and 50s. We're not These talking trampoline, about trampolines. Like We're the talking trampoline about house, the bounce house the bounce. thing where you go and bounce on trampolines I, all day. Uh, and I will say people, my kids go to that all the time. And every time my wife tells me she'd take the kids, I just sort of cringe. And I, I know now enough about my about relationships to just shut my mouth and just not complain. But like, you know... You can land. There's so many ways you can land wrong, or but they you can, love it, right? But it's everything. They, you, but they do. So but do they love it enough to be in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives? Well, you know They're what? The ship's safe in the harbor, Gabe. But that's not what it was designed no, that's, for. No, that's that's true. That's you're, true. You're the guy telling me, "Hey, you're crazy to go out on a road bike," so, and yet you go out on your motorcycle. Do we get? Do we get enough societal benefit from people going to bounce houses? To justify, ask the people participating. They're the ones signing off, right? But they do they do they get a? a do thing we need saying, to look at this from a societal benefit perspective? Well, yes, if it's public policy, that's exactly that's well, what public policy about means. Policy. We're going, well, that's how these are upheld. Is they say public policy says we're going to allow people to make this decision. We're, well, we're allowing to, people to make a decision about their own well-being and about what can they intelligently make, make that decision though. Well, if you tell them you're going to die. And you sign off and say, you know what, I'm going to risk it, let's roll. And they do, why should we let them take that risk? Uh, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with letting them take that risk. I just think that if they do it, I mean, the, the standard that we hold everyone else to in society is a reasonable person under these circumstances, okay? So why would it not be, why would it not be, unless, you, unless you're going to cop to the argument that, for example, the bounce house is inherently unreasonably dangerous. Well, I think that's what they're saying. Wait, no, but wait a minute. If you're going to say that this activity it, it, it is inherently unreasonably dangerous, like no amount of reasonable care can protect you in this, in this thing, because even without the waivers, plaintiffs can only recover if they show... If they if they meet this the standard for negligence, if they show unreasonable contact, and and you know why change that? Why should we not allow plaintiffs to recover if they can show that, for example, the operator of the you know the the horse rental thing acted unreasonably for somebody renting horses? Like if you could put up another guy who rents horses and say, yeah, oh. That was you that fell below the standard of care. Like, why shouldn't that be enough to recover? Why should we encourage people to act unreasonably and say it's okay in these particular circumstances? It's even if you act unreasonably, we still won't let you recover. Why shouldn't reasonable person still be the standard? Well, and I, you know, to to now switch hats because I've done that like three times today. And I, I, I applaud I, you for that. Well, here's the thing. So think about it in terms of, uh, I believe it's West, no, no, I think it's not West, normal Virginia. I think Virginia has it, it's against public policy to have any kind of pre-injury release. And yet, I would imagine they've still got most, if not all, of these activities within sure. the state. And they're still happening, and at the end of the day, if somebody gets sued, the question is going to be, did the operator operate like a normal operator? Or did they do something that goes outside of the scope of what an operator typically and should do? You know, yeah, the reasonable I mean, operator standard. And we keep coming back to the horse thing, and I think it's my. I grew up. I grew up surrounded by horses. My father's an ag guy, so I know about horses. But like you know, you could say, well, was it unreasonable to put this nine-year-old on this horse with this history 
that you, the operator, knew about. I mean, with the waiver, that could become irrelevant. You know, they, they put this kid on a, on a, on a dangerous animal. Tilikum the horse. Yeah, but like... Known for I, I just, I don't see the need for additional protections beyond the reasonable person standard. Like if, if unless, unless... Well, here we're we saying, are, here we are. We're, we've come full circle. Because at the end of the day, let's say they put him on a horse they knew was a troublesome horse. Is that is now, it gross? Is that neg- gross negligence? Is it gross negligence? And, and if you if this happened, even in a state where so if you've that's got the case, waivers, why do you need the waiver? Chilling. That goes back to my my point. You, all so along. you want to chill? We, you want to protect? Want, we want to chill companies. against frivolous and potentially unnecessary claims. Whoa, 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 whoa! But use the word frivolous there. We're saying well, okay. you want to chill claims where the person. Where the person failed to comply with the standard of care, and we all agree. Yeah, you've got to fight. So that's not a frivolous claim. You've got to fight for your right no, to No, but I, I agree with the point. I think it's that in these dangerous activities, there are so many ways that you can claim somebody was acting unreasonably um, more than with a normal activity, right? There's a lot of different pitfalls. Such as? There are so many different no, ways. No, come on, man. Um, Let's be silly. We're not going to get into a I mean, laundry uh, list. Well, they didn't put your... Well, like with the... Oh, they had a spring that horses, was bad in the trampoline park. Oh, one of the pads wasn't the tra- as spongy as other pads. Right. Trampoline, trampoline parks are actually a good example because it's something that it, you you may not be able to 100% make it safe. Right. So or the trampoline pad was the wrong color or you had the wrong Ooh. type of lighting that threw off people's vision. Um... You had too many shiny surfaces, and so there were reflections that. Like, I mean, if you're not confident, the trampoline if you're not confident, if you're not confident, if you could win a case, yeah, if you're not confident, you could win a case with that shaky. No, no, no. She's got a point, though. You, you, you ought to limit it to though. I mean, you have to. You got to want it. Maybe is the point here. Well, I, I, what I'm saying is, is that if, on the one hand, if it is. If the business is un, is if we find that it's inherently dangerous and it's just impossible to mitigate the risks of of the activity, just in, you cannot do it with any exercise of like well, like dynamiting. It's not like dynamite dodgeball. Like dynamiting. Like if you can't mitigate the the risk with any sort of reasonable activity, then maybe you've got an argument. But the there's that's not the limitation. The limitation is. You can put pre-injury releases in almost everything, and even stuff like horseback riding, like skydiving, where to a large extent you can mitigate the risk. I mean, you can make sure that the shoots are packed correctly. You can make sure that the weather report supports. You know, think- now, can things certainly happen that even though you exercise all standard of care, you things still happen? Yes, that can happen. And then in that case, summary judgment for the defendant. Because he didn't do anything wrong. I mean, he thinks one of us is a plaintiff's attorney. I well, don't, obviously, I, just, I get this feeling that one of us. I just I struggle with this because for the I want to sue. Segment. I just think that I just think that this policy encourages it has the potential to encourage reckless behavior. Doesn't the market care for that though? How so? People are getting hurt left and right or dying at this trampoline park. No, but it's never it's never left or right. I mean, it's not. We're not talking about like. The flu of 1918. But then know, they're not utterly disregard. We're not dropping these, like, like flies. Traps that you're afraid no, of. But if you're paralyzing like two people a year for life, isn't that enough? But what if 
about the countless millions who are made happy. Wait, we're probably talking about the, the countless tens of thousands, but yeah. Oh, there you go. What kind of societal benefit? Can you put a number on the smile of a child's <laughs> face? I can, I can put a number on the, smi- on, on, the, on the value of a case where somebody is permanently paralyzed. How many children's smiles does that cost? Yeah, yeah, that's essentially what we're asking. And, you know, but there are very few, I think there are very few businesses out there where they're just, there are so many dangers that by the exercise of reasonable care, you couldn't, you couldn't make them reasonably safe to the point where you can operate the business at a reasonable cost and, and avoid specious claims. All right, so what's the resolution here, Gabriel? Um, well, I know what my suggestion Sign is. Sign the I, waiver. Abolish the If you really want I your claim, call think, it gross negligence and proceed anyway. I think we should, I think, we, I think the rule, the public policy rule, if, if you put me in charge of, you know, if I was made dictator of the state, you know, um, the rule would be, would be unless you can demonstrate your business is inherently dangerous and yet still has societal benefits in existing, um, then pre-injury releases should be invalid. Now, if you meet those requirements, like, yes, I cannot make this safe, but there's still benefits in doing it, and so we want to do it, so let's let people, let's explain to them the risks and let them choose, great. Isn't that what we've done? I think it is. So, but, but, but there but, are plenty of but activities... <laughs> That can that that you can by exercise of reasonable care you can make them reasonably safe, and yet we still allow cutting off these legitimate claims, non frivolous claims, um, basically because insurance industry doesn't want to cover them. They they'd rather just collect premiums and not pay claims. They like the collecting of the premiums, the paying of the claims. So, so much hatred for. For the insurers here. It's, Who are you insured it's, it's, to, Gabriel? It's born out of experience. I, I mean, can you, if you were an insurance company, would you love playing claims? Do you think they get to be enormous companies? As my wife is writing a lot for of checks all day, every day. Like, like, do you think that these get to be multi-billion-dollar companies by writing tons of checks? Is that how you do it? <laughs> yes, Gabe. Yeah, by writing checks. Yes. Yeah. That's how they do themselves. No, I, I don't think there is a resolution to it. Obviously, we know your position, Gabe. So, so if you're a business, do you include? I mean, when do you go to the trouble of including a pre-injury release in something that you give to your customers? Just in Utah, just basically any business at all, you put it in there in the hopes that it will protect you, or what? What would be the advice that you would give to business owners? When should they worry about this? I think it's when you have a sufficiently risky or dangerous activity. Like bowling? Probably not. No, you're going to put in your bowling release. I you put it everywhere? It would be malpractice for an attorney drafting a bowling participation contract. Okay, but what? A provision in you're there that says to bowling the cannot be made you, safe. To the extent that you hyperextend your shoulder, oh you mess yourself goodness. up because you selected a ball or we gave you a ball that was too heavy. We want you to acknowledge that there are risks associated with the bowling. No, I okay. think that pretty much I'll admit, I'll admit a to being... A walking club. Hey, hey I'll admit to being You know what? If I'm the leader of the walking hey. club, I'm probably going to put something on the hey. website that says, you know, you acknowledge hey. that you could get hit by a milk truck 
while outside with the walking club. Paris, Paris. And that it's not the walking club's fault simply for having a organized walk happen at the same time that Winder's making milk deliveries. Hey, pa- hey Paris, Paris, I will admit to being the champion of the injured and the plaintiff's whore and whatever else you want to call me. <laughs> but I think after that comment that it would be malpractice for a bowling alley not to include a pre-injury release because... Because they might just inevitably injure people. I think you have to, in fairness, admit anyone to listening. You a, need to be careful. A filthy shill for the insurance company. Will don't you admit listen, that? Don't listen to Gabe I'll because admit, he's been. He's I'll admit my talking part. to the bowling alley about a malpractice suit against you. I'll admit you. If I, I, and you don't have that in your contract. I'll admit that I, my business is to look out for injured people. Okay, while well, we let that cool down for a second, let's just hear a brief word from our sponsor. The Law Offices of Gabriel K. White provides extraordinary service for a reasonable fee. Other personal injury law firms will take a third of your recovery, even if they don't do any work to settle your case. The Law Offices of Gabriel K. White doesn't operate that way. Our fees depend on our risk, which means that we charge you less if your case settles sooner. Any new injured clients will only have to pay a 25% fee if we settle or resolve the case without filing a complaint or other paperwork with a court, arbitration, or other panel. Compared with what other personal injury law firms charge, that's a savings of over $8,300 on a $100,000 case. Why pay more? If you have been injured in an accident, call the law offices of Gabriel K. White at 801-810-9491. Will you admit that your business is to look out for my business is to look out for whoever my client is, and my point is, if I represent a bowling alley and they ask me what kind of liability could we face, I have to look at them and say, you know what, I'll think about it. And in thinking about it, I'm going to imagine my 90-year-old grandpa accidentally getting a ball that's the heaviest one out there and trying to bowl with it because he's inexperienced and like throwing his shoulder out or maybe falling down and breaking a hip because the ball's too thick or the, the holes are too small or whatever. And now all of a sudden, is it is it the guy with the cracking voice's fault for having given him a ball that's too heavy? Should there have been provisions to train them better when giving heavy balls to senior citizens? Yes, this is but we're talking we're going balls out. Here. Okay, but look, all right, all right. So is there any company that you would not advise? That was my next question. Yeah. To put in. Well, a, I, I, you know what? I'm gonna turn. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. Let me say one thing. I'm gonna pause the recording if you don't let me talk. No, no. Let me just say one thing. I'm gonna say the one thing the lawyers always say. Okay. It depends. There you go. All right. It depends. Name here's one. The, here's here's the here's the. It depends. Let I me ask you this: company. Is it coming <laughs> from? Is it coming from a place, and not speaking specifically of yourself, but of an attorney in your shoes and position? Is it coming from a position of, of of analytical thought, or is it coming from just laziness? Like, I w- I don't want to get sued for this. I'm worried that if. If the, company, that, if the company gets sued, hold on, hold on, laziness? hold on, because if you're saying they may not need this. Well, you ought to be willing to They fight. may not need this, but if the company gets sued for this, I, they may turn around and sue me for malpractice, so I'll put it in regardless. I'll recommend it regardless of whether they actually need it. Is it like, is it like preventative medicine? Like you're, you're doing too many tests because you're worried you're going to get sued? To a degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'll give you that's that. fair. I'll give you that. No, I think that's fair. It's absolutely. It, it's it's. 
the, the term, and I'm not swearing, I'm saying a different word, but it, it's CYB, cover your butt. Is there, <laughs> right, so maybe this is a topic for another podcast, but, but is this an argument for extending some of the protections that doctors have from liability to attorneys? Maybe. And on that note, thank you for listening to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast, and we hope you will tune in again. Thank you very much.